Welcome to the Techni Podcasts. My name is Joanna Piranevis. I am an art history PhD candidate at the Kingston School of Arts of Kingston University. This episode is about my residency at the Smithsonian's Archives of American Art in Washington, D.C. I was awarded an IPS fellowship through HRC and Techne to spend three months with the Smithsonian's collections. And because uh, I was there during the shutdown, I decided to write a text trying to make sense of my PhD experience in that new environment. So here it goes. Thank you for listening. As I sit here at the office that was allocated to me at the Smithsonian's Archives of American Art, I feel at home. I will have spent three months in Washington, D.C. by the end of January 2019. Outside, the city is vacant because of the government shutdown, going now for 28 days. Inside, small details remind us of what is going on. Two-thirds of the staff are absent. Some corridor lights are turned off. No one turns them on. The weekly conferences taking place at lunchtime for the staff are cancelled. Emails are sent with template letters for landlords and energy providers. The mood is sombre. The library is closed. Small groups of two or three people gather in the restroom to talk and linger more than usual. For me, this is a temporary office. It's not home in the common sense of the word, but it is home in as much as it's a place where I feel comfortable, surrounded by big boxes filled with papers being brought in and brought out for scholars and for the general public. These collections are called papers, by the way. There are not only papers inside the carton boxes, but also memorabilia. There are tapes, pins, films, right there with the letters and the drawings of more artists, writers and intellectuals than I can imagine. But papers, I find, is the perfect term. In the world outside, papers, it's a dismissive term, too general, slightly bureaucratic. Have you signed the papers, we ask? It's what they represent that counts, the divorce or the house purchase. In here, the papers are taken almost to a mythical level. I'm here to look at Lucy Laporte's papers, a notion that fills me with trepidation but also anxiety. Anxiety because Lucy Laporte, who was born in 1937, was one of the first women to make a name for herself in the art world as a critic, as an independent professional. As per her words, at the age of 27, she had managed to do everything she'd decided to accomplish when she was 17, write and publish, to rely on her penmanship as a professional. Anxiety also, because Lucy is alive and well, living in New Mexico, working and writing. She is inside the archive and also outside, in the world where her government is suspended and where I suspect she feels that her activism is needed more than ever. We exchange emails that could have been a connection between the papers and the flux of the present, but her answers are always, I don't remember. She seems to be saying, I'm in New Mexico now. I'm an activist interested in the present. That is the past. This should fill me with anxiety regarding what I'm doing and wake up that dreaded monster of a question. Why am I doing this? If Lucy herself doesn't care, why do I? But she does. She gave all her papers, all 77 boxes of them, to people to write, rewrite, visit and revisit history. A history she's still making because if she has an act for something, 
It's for being where things are happening. After being almost the only critic to champion conceptual art, she turned to feminism at the turn of the 70s, to Central America civil rights issues, to black artists, to Native American art and life, and so much more. It's our turn to make these papers resonate with the present. There are more than papers here. There are the people who deal with the papers and the microfilms, who transcribe tapes, who digitalize notebooks, the people who welcome us, the researchers. The papers are nurtured, and so are the people who come in here. One of the other fellows tells me her father came to the archives to look up stuff to do with the Civil War. He was not a scholar nor a journalist, just a history nut. The papers are here for everybody. We are all part of a team of people whose work is to keep the flux of history and thought alive. Better yet, we're here not only to sustain its life, but also to give it another one. One would think that in times of need, there have been and there are times of need right now as I write, the papers would be unnecessary, superfluous even, a luxury, the luxury of the intellectual who stays inside while the world outside unravels. However, these papers and what we do with them is what the outside sometimes relies upon in order to keep functioning, to be more than human, to be more than mere machines working and repeating the same actions over and over again. How can we discuss matters and understand our society if we do not connect with the thinkers and the image makers, if we do not inquire what a thought is and how it works? These papers are one of the platforms to try to understand how a concept can be an artwork which, incidentally, is the basis of my research. Through the obsessive safekeeping of documents, interviews and photographs by Lepard, but also in the Leo Castelli and Thomas Llewellyn Gallery archives and many other papers, I connect with the times. I look at curated exhibitions, at newspaper clippings and personal correspondence. Archives give us much more than we can process. They are the devil because apparently he is in the details. Archives are an accumulation of details that can make up a whole constellation that suddenly draws up a story because we piece them together. But they're also abundant in details whose profound meaning never makes it to the research. They are imbued with the mind of the artist or the critic, of their struggles and their dreams, of their doubts. That is one of the biggest lessons of the archive for me. I use the word perhaps much more. History is made by people and people are most times ambivalent in their choices. Lepard, for example, says that she's always caught between art and politics. The mind is a pendulum and what it produces can reflect different stages of its oscillation. I'm looking at two founders of conceptual art. Conceptualism is a movement that situates the art in the idea and not its, re its realization. It nevertheless produces images, documents and drawings, some of which I relate with scientific imagery of the 19th century, to graphic machines and sequential photography. For a reason that I have yet to unfold completely, Saul Lewitt, an artist who do, drew diagrams on walls from very intricate and at times mathematical instructions, saw in Edward Muybridge's photographic sequences of animals and people in motion, objectivity and seriality. Edward Muybridge was a British inventor 
and photographer, who set off to America in the 1850s where he became a notorious artist, using photography, and who Leland Stanford asked to prove that horses lifted their forelegs in the air when running. Muybridge devised a mechanism with several cameras in sequence that photographed the different stages of motion, thus proving his boss to be right, which must have been a relief. Another conceptual artist, Douglas Hubler, related lines and dots with a seemingly scientific text written by him. I compare his art pieces with Etienne Jules Marais graphic and recording devices and chronophotography. Marais invented machines that opened a path to devices such as the seismograph or the electrocardiograph, which translate movement into patterned lines. Conceptual artists used lines that denoted realities a lot, be it as maps or in their most elementary state, as simple lines. One of Hubler's work, for instance, is a single vertical line on a white sheet with the following words below, quote, the line above is rotating on its axis at a speed of one revolution each day, unquote. This, of course, is a huge extrapolation when one looks at the simplicity and self-sufficiency of the line. A line is a line. Like Solowitz says, quote, the drawing of a person is not a real person, but a drawing of a line is a real line, unquote. But Hubler, through the information provided, takes us to the line and away from the line. He takes us to a mental space where the idea of the line is applied to knowledge, we know that there is an imaginary axis around which the Earth revolves, making a complete turn of 24 hours. As a child, I personally believe that line to be existing. Hubler makes us see with the inward eye what the physical eye cannot, that most of our knowledge is invisible and takes place, like he says so himself, beyond perception in the graphic mental rendering allowing us to understand. Etienne Jules Marais wrote, quote, The spherical quality of the Earth, its daily rotation, the distances between the stars and their immense volumes, all our astronomic knowledge, as it were, is a denial of our sensorial perception, unquote. This was written in 1885. Beyond perception, beyond myths, beyond common language, that is where the principle of knowledge is. This is a testimony of one of the inventors who not only allowed for others to put the sequential images together and thus invent cinema, but more importantly, he was a hero in the neurological field, as he also rendered possible the existence of motion capture devices and the algorithmic rendering of their data. It is so valuable that this testimony moved on to art and now to theory, which invites us to revisit the beginnings of our technological era and reassess them. My work is to build a pathway to that by exploring conceptual art, which was critical of the inherited positivism of science. Conceptual art relies on documents for the most part, photographs and graphic endeavors like Marais did. One of Hubler's pieces is a sequence of photographs representing, according to the text written by the artist, the places where an auditor heard birds chirping in Central Park. It's easy to imagine the configuration of the work, a set of 10 photographs with a text by its side. The text reads, quote, 
During a 10-minute period of time on March 17, 1969, 10 photographs were made, each documenting the location in Central Park where an individually distinguishable bird was heard. Each photograph was made with a camera pointed in the direction of the sound. That direction was then walked towards by the auditor until the instant that the next call was heard, at which time the next photograph was made and the next direction taken. The ten photographs join with the statement to constitute the form of this piece, signed Douglas Hubler on April 1969, unquote. By disconnecting sound from its fleeting image, one often cannot tell which bird is singing, let alone spot it in the park, Hubler places the actual information in the leap between data, but mostly it dismantles the experience of being a spectator. We have forgotten that conceptual art was often called information art. There was a big exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in 1970 called Information, curated by Kiniston L. McShine, where not only the devices that conveyed information were highlighted, but also information itself as the object of the work. In the piece above, Hubler engages the spectator in a romantic projection regarding those photographs, giving too many unnecessary details, including the minutes between each photo, that I didn't read. With these, a reality is created with the aid of the image. However, here the photograph fails to serve as proof, as much as a text. A superficial reading of the work highlights how photography fails as a conveyor of content. It does not record sound. However, Hubler is here alerting to the fact that the graphic and photographic documents together constitute reality, or rather, a reality. The text is as false as the images, potentially. Who can prove that this inf information is true? In the time of fake news, this graphic and photographic intertwining is a notion that is being both explored and abused. The text works like the vertical line and the photograph. It draws a mental image. The data is interconnected. Mental images are schemata that in Renaissance theory were considered disegno, graphic diagrams of relations between things, thoughts, values, people, emotions. Solowit once said, I can't paint a picture of a person because to me it wouldn't be ethical. I mean, I can draw a line on a wall because I think it's an ethical act an ethical act, and it's necessary in terms of how I think or how thinking of a particular art world goes." End of quote. Conceptualism was born in a world full of objects, as Hubler said, but also full of images that would do nothing more than proliferate. In those days, artists were selling metaphysics, like Mark Rothko, for, example, for instance, who would end up committing suicide and sparked the biggest scandal in the art world when his family sued Marlborough Gallery for speculation and voluntary withdrawal of works in order to create desire and inflate prices. Lewitt talks about the image or the diagram and the conveyor of everything, the market. Conceptualism exists alongside paintings, abstract and figurative, but it allows us to enjoy them more and in a more informed way, or rather, with a critical and enlightened notion of what information is. Associating text with photos and diagrams now seems particularly ominous in a time where social media was nothing more than, at best, a Twilight Zone episode. 
but it also, on a deeper level, foresees the invisibility and inaccessibility of the technology that rules our lives for the best and sometimes for the worst.